Once again, it feels like Jesus has gone into bullet point mode here in his sermon as, as we enter now the last chapter of his Sermon on the Mount in chapter 7 of Matthew's Gospel. Uh, that he's just giving isolated teachings now one by one. But I'm inclined to think we ought to look more intently uh, and, and see about that in case there is actually some kind of connection and some kind of flow here between these things. Because for one thing, I mean, everything else has actually so far flowed and quite beautifully flowed. I don't know if I want to think that Jesus would suddenly be changing tack here or or maybe just getting tired or, or pressed for time here at the end of his sermon. So I wonder if instead I'm just missing the flow. For another thing, my eye was caught in this text by that little word at the start of verse 12, so. So, whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. That little tiny so just makes me think that 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 famous little verse there in verse 12 actually flows on from the previous text. So, we'll work through this text and, and think about the various things that Jesus does talk about here, as always, of course. But perhaps too we might think in the back of our minds about this teaching in terms of where it it might actually flow, and whether these things might therefore all somehow fit together. The first five verses speak to how we should walk with our brothers and sisters. In, in the here and now, how we should walk with our brothers and sisters while we are all still wrestling with sin. And the opening verse, I think, is very often misused. Judge not that you be not judged. So many people look at that verse in in isolation from the very next words and and take it to mean here in Matthew chapter 7 and verse 1 that that Christians should not presume to judge what is right and what's wrong in anyone's life. And and obviously that then becomes a rock-solid defense against anyone who might ever call out people's sin. Christians shouldn't judge would be the catch cry of people who read this verse in, in isolation that kind of way. And yet the rest of the text actually speaks about how we should, in fact, lean into each other's lives and help correct each other from sin. If we go about things right, verse 5 actually says that we will be able to see clearly to help one another to take away sin from our lives. It's just that we need to find the right posture before we try to do that. And that's where the rest of the verses in between 1 and 5 come into play. And specifically, Jesus says that we should start with our own sinful hearts first, rather than just focusing on our brothers and sisters and their sin. Let's read the whole thing. Judge not that you be not judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is the log in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Yes, in fact, we should judge rightly and discern about sin in the lives of other believers, but moreover, says Jesus, we should examine our own lives for sin too. That will have us better placed, says Jesus, to actually then help those other friends. In other words, 
we are to judge, but not be judgmental. And in other words, I think, we are called to be just towards the sin, but gracious towards the sinner. We need to have a measured approach that has us searching our own hearts first in in humble concession that, that we too have sin in our lives. And that will bring us into the necessary posture to be able to help one another. We need a kingdom heart posture of humble grace. Just as God has been gracious to us in our sin, so also us now unto others. But as Jesus seems to know here, our default inclination is to jump up and down about other people's sin while hardly batting an eye to our own. This is our painful and difficult reality if we are honest with ourselves. Too easily, too easily we get drawn into judging others as sinners as our first point of call. If indeed we ever do move on to consider ourselves. And but Jesus says here we should search first for the sin in our own kingdom hearts. And he calls our sin a plank in our eye and others a speck in their eye to to imply that us dealing with our own sin should be the much greater priority. So maybe we should learn to see that red flag when, when we find ourselves increasingly harping on other people's sin. Maybe that's actually a warning that that something might be wanting in terms of our own wrestle with sin. Perhaps we are ignoring some crisis within. We should be humble as disciples of Jesus, foremost concerned with our own life and, and our own desperate need for his grace to forgive us and correct us from sin. And from that broken posture, we would then be more kingdom heart generous towards others. Without, of course, on the other hand, turning a blind eye to to anyone's sin. We need to be able to judge right and wrong, but we need that posture of humility and grace towards other people's sin. Not to ignore it, but to discern it and correct it from an appropriate posture. The Apostle Paul puts it like this in Galatians chapter 6, verse 1. He says, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Verse 6 seems a little bit random, like a a detour from that point we've just been thinking through, but perhaps it does somehow connect back to verses 1 to 5. Jesus suddenly says, Do not give dogs what is holy, and do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. While you just quietly contemplate what things are actually holy and precious, I might just suggest a couple of ways that Jesus might still be fleshing out the same point here that he he was only just talking about in in this difficult uh, verse 6 here. Option 1. Jesus might be balancing out what he only just said. He might be balancing out verses 1 to 5 as if to remind us the other side of the same coin. We should have a posture of humility and grace as we try to correct one another's sin 
But that's not to say we should use no discernment at all. So if these pigs and dogs are figurative words here to help us picture some people, then we can be aware that there will be some people or people who at certain times perhaps will not be interested in our humility or grace nor our perspectives on sin. They will actually just want to to lash out, to to damage us, and and so we should be aware of and and be on our guard about this uh, as as to who and when we should try to lean in to discuss any of these matters of sin. Maybe Jesus is balancing out what he only just said. Option two as to how this might connect back. In verse 6, Jesus might be recapturing what he only just said. Recapturing what he only just said. We should take the the right kind of approach towards others, being humble and gracious in matters of of discerning and helping their sin. And in verse 6 now, he might be going deeper in that point. Deeper with that teaching, putting putting into a picturey language that the spiritual dangers behind getting it all wrong. God's people and God's gospel, I would say, are, are certainly holy and precious things. And every time we go wrong-headed into the matter of engaging God's people's sin, then then we actually invite in the devil and his condemnation of sinners along with the sin. And so maybe the dogs and the pigs here refer to spiritual enemies and the enemies of God, the forces of evil who have no concern for for any believers, but just want to destroy all of God's people and our gospel of grace. So when we speak to our brothers and sisters in Christ about a matter of sin in their life, but have failed to take on our own humble posture first in in the mercy of God's grace to our own sin, then we risk casting God's gospel and his people and even ourselves before forces that are, are hostile to the kingdom of heaven. Satan will take any opportunity to to rip us out of the gospel of grace and and to stir up enmity in doing that and to stir up strife and and despair and hurt and pain and shame and anger and all the other things that Jesus has lifted us out of through his gospel of grace. We may be confident in our own minds that, that, that we think we can rightly draw out other people's sin, and, and if we do go into that from the wrong posture, well, Satan will happily validate that pride for us. But don't be deceived. He cares not for us and will turn on us next. When we fall into judgmentalism with our brothers and sisters, we abandon the gospel of grace. When we fall into judgmentalism, we abandon the gospel of grace, and that will destroy not just the brother or sister, but eventually us as well. Anyway, that's a couple of ways to understand what Jesus might mean in this difficult verse, in verse 6, if it does link back to the previous teaching. Our kingdom heart should have a right posture of humility and grace towards other kingdom people. And from that posture, we should try to, to lean into their lives with gentle correction. But to give that some balance, perhaps, that doesn't mean we should try to help everyone with their various specks of sin. Some people won't be open to it. 
no matter how humbly or gently we go in. Or if Jesus is then taking us deeper to this point in verse 6, we should be aware that when we, when we try to lean in with the wrong posture, there are clear spiritual dangers within. Or maybe he means something else altogether from verses 1 to 5. We can chat about other ideas on this verse and think more specifically about how how this verse does play out in our life, in in our small groups this week. So look forward to that. But today, let me plant that other seed in your your thoughts that, that maybe Jesus might have intended that these words should somehow all flow. Which brings me to the next part of the teaching. In verses 7 to 11, Jesus moves on to speak once again of of God's goodness to us that he's already told us of in this sermon. I'm still mindful of that little so that's coming up in verse 12, but but let's park that for a minute and and just reflect on the reminder he gives us here in verse 7 through 11 of, of God's good care for our lives, God's good sovereign care for our lives. Jesus says, if we ask God, it will be given to us. If we seek, we will find. If we knock, the door will be opened. If verse 7 wasn't enough to get that home clearly, then Jesus repeats it all again in verse 8. He tells us to ask, seek and knock because we will receive, find and enter. Because our Father knows how to give good gifts to us, his children, and so surely he will. That's what Jesus says here, but, but what should we think it all means? I think the second and third points there, people would more uh, easily or, or more readily perhaps align with, you know, kingdom of heaven kind of things, rather than uh, thinking about them in terms of this earthly life. But if not, we might recall that, that only last week, back in chapter 6 and verse 33, Jesus was, was telling us to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness So why would he now be talking about seeking something else, something lesser in in chapter 7 and verse 7? So too wouldn't it be that we would be knocking on the door of of heaven? God will open that door even now. The first point, though, I think, is one where we're more likely to wander back and and, and get stuck in this earthly frame of mind. Ask, and we shall receive. Ask and we shall receive. Now, not to say that we shouldn't ask for everything we need in this life. Actually, of course we should. But surely of first importance and and of first relevance here would be that we were asking kingdom kind of things like forgiveness, salvation, mercy, comfort for our souls, assurance of heaven, such things like these. Again, Didn't Jesus only just try to lift up our eyes to heaven? To store up treasures in heaven and not store up things on this earth? So why is it that we see verses like this one in verse 7? And instinctively, I think, if we're honest, we think about things like a million dollars for ourselves rather than, you know, that basic support would be raised for, for a missionary worker friend. But so too, as I say, we should ask God to care for us too, just as Jesus told us in this very sermon that God will feed us and clothe us and that we should ask for our daily bread. Again, though, our eyes probably lock onto this verse, ask and you will receive, and and think more about million-dollar kind of things 
than the next grocery bill or op shopping trip. The verse makes God seem a bit like a genie to our culturally conditioned minds if we, if we just isolate those few words. And then, of course, when we don't receive what we've asked for, the verse seems totally unreal. But perhaps the million-dollar kind of requests that we make would actually be to us like the serpent or the stone, an agent of death in, in the picture words that Jesus goes on to use. We think that million would be good for us, like, like landing the mother of all fish that would, would sort out all our needs once and for all. But God would know better than us. It could be a big venomous snake. If we could learn to ask for what would truly be good for us, what would actually be the bread and the fish in Jesus' word pictures here, then, then we could expect God would then provide what we need. So the problem here is not that Jesus is mistaken in this verse or, or exaggerating this promise from God, but that we are so often and so easily misguided about the things that we actually need about what would actually be good for us. We don't always know the measure that we need, but God knows, and without measure, he cares. And it's from this extraordinary basis, where Jesus reminds us yet again in this sermon that we are safe in the hands of God for, for our lives, then, that he now drops in that little word, so. So, whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. The concept itself here in this teaching, I think, is fairly straightforward. It's known as the golden rule because it captures in, in, in one the whole essence of God's Old Testament laws. As Jesus says there, you'll recall from earlier in the series, chapter 5 and verse 17 in Jesus' sermon, that the law and the prophets, it's shorthand for the Old Testament scriptures. And now Jesus uses that shorthand again because this golden rule, do unto others as you'd have them do unto you, actually underpins all the various Old Testament laws. And it is so straightforward and intuitive, I think, for us, this call in verse 12, that it has actually become woven into even our secular thinking in, in the social and cultural space that we live in. Anyway, we can look a little deeper into the rule itself in our small groups this week. The challenge I'd rather put to us today is, is that we might try to understand that little so that sets it all up. So, whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. The most immediate context for that so is that ask, seek, knock teaching that was running from verse 7. So, could it be that we treat others as we'd like to be treated, because God has already so perfectly treated and promised to care for us well first? Is it that if we know God so loves us and is caring for all of our needs, then, then we can actually learn to have real love for one another and to care for them too? Do verses 7 to 12 all go together and form a nice little block that teaches us that we need to take a a healthy kingdom heart posture of, of thankful generosity towards others. That we can be so thankful for God's goodness to us in, in all that we need, that we can turn around from that and just be generous and loving towards others. If we measure the immeasurable riches of God's tender care, then, 
then we might have a kinder, more gentle posture towards others. I don't know, something like that. I don't know. I do think there must be some kind of flow of logic like that in this section, but so too I'm mindful, of course, that the way we would want others to treat us, in verse 12, would also sweep further back into Jesus' words. So if we think back on the first part here in verses 1 to 6, surely we would want others to be humble and gracious with us when helping us in our wrestle with sin. And so too we should treat them that way too when it's the other way around. So maybe the little so in verse 12 takes all of this in. Treat others with humility and grace in matters of sin because that's how we'd want them to treat us in matters of our sin. Be kind and generous towards others. We'd want them to treat us that way too. Both of those things actually flow from how God treats us all. All of us who have come to have faith in the Lord Jesus. He has set us aside as his holy and precious possession through his own humility and grace towards our sin. And he has taken our needs under his sovereign care now. And he has us in his hands the rest of our lives and to eternity. Something about that here connects these dots. I can't get my finger on it, but there's something here that flows from our heart relationship with God into our heart relationship with others. And maybe... This verse 12 sweeps right back to take in all of this sermon that Jesus has given us. But so too, of course, it it sweeps back to encompass the fundamental call God has given us all the way through Scripture, as Jesus himself here has said. Something about our kingdom heart relationship with the living God must flow into our heart relationships with others. So what should we do with this whole teaching here today in this part of the sermon? I think Jesus is winding his sermon together here as he he starts to head towards the end. And I think he's trying to teach us about posture. If we understand that we are saved only on account of being the recipients of God's good grace, if we understand that we survive day to day only by God's loving care, then we should be brought into a corresponding heart posture. Not just posture before God, but in our dealings with others. There is a kingdom heart posture that is a fitting response to God's grace and his provision for us. And there are other postures we could be take that would be fitting of hearts that are someplace else. So we should take on Jesus' teachings here by examining our kingdom heart posture and ask ourselves some hard questions. Do I jump up and down about other people's sin? Do I harp and and carry on or, or, or correct from some high place far, far above them? Do I remember God's gospel of grace in my own life and for my own sin? Do I remember God's gospel of grace for his other people too? 
do I forget that God cares for all of his children and will certainly care for me? Do I know that he provides everything I have and will need? Do I count others as more significant than myself? Or have I slipped into a posture of old-hearted pride? Have I slipped into a posture of old-hearted pride? Blessed are the poor in spirit, as Jesus began his whole sermon. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you as always for your scriptures, that we have them open and available and we can look at what you say. We hear probing calls from Jesus in this part of his sermon that we should start with our own wrestle of sin. Help us to trust you, Father, and and actually respond with, with that same kind of love and humble grace for your other children. Keep us ever mindful and and only more and more mindful that it is your grace that made us your children. It is your providence that keeps us alive. Teach us, therefore, to be kind and gentle to others. Holy Spirit, search our hearts and help us discover where the dangers do lie. Show us where we can take on a more kingdom-hearted posture in our lives. In Jesus' name and for his glory we pray. Amen.